Well, hey, everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. And I have been so good this whole football season, okay? I have only brought up Michigan one time, but today, friends, is a day for Michigan fans to celebrate. Let me hear you. Yes. I mean, it is a good day unless you're Ryan Day. Oh, that was really not Jesus-y. We're moving on. Yeah. Anyway, we are in the final week of a series that we've called The Essentials. It's all about what someone needs to believe in order to be a Christian. And as I've mentioned each week during this series, I really wanted to explore this content with you because over the past few decades, many, many people, and especially young people, have walked away from the Christian faith because of things that really aren't essential to the Christian faith. Um, and, and, and when you ask them why they walked away, and I have, it's something of a hobby of mine, um, they all share stories that sound eerily similar. They, they say there was sort of this growing discontentment within them, and eventually they reached a moment where they thought, if being a follower of Jesus means I have to vote like that, or be like that, or blog like that, or post like that, or treat people like that, then I guess I'd rather not be a Jesus follower. Uh, but here's the thing, and honestly, I've said this more times than I can count. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't necessarily require you to vote like that, or be like that, or blog like that, or post like that, or treat people like that. And, and then I always mention something else that I've thought about for years, uh, namely that there are versions of Christianity that kind of should be walked away from because they're far from what Jesus had in mind for his followers. In fact, sometimes they actually take things away from the way Jesus wants them to be. I've, that's rattled around in my head for years because of a book that came out years ago. Uh, in the introduction of the book, I want to show you something the author said, and I just love this. Uh, he wrote, sometimes an individual's rejection of church and the Christian faith they were presented with as the only possible interpretation of what it means to follow Jesus may in fact be a sign of spiritual health. They may be resisting behaviors, interpretations, and attitudes that should be rejected. And this perhaps they simply came to a point where they refused to accept the very sorts of things that Jesus would refuse to accept. And I love this last line, some Jesuses should be rejected. And if you ever wondered what the plural of Jesus is, it's not Jesus I, it's Jesus's like that. Yeah, yeah, but really something, something to think about. But, but anyway, that brings me back to the question that really has driven this entire series. And the question goes like this, like given that we live in a world where certain groups of Christians have added a lot of non-essential things to the list of things that must be believed in order to be a Christian, and that as a result of that, many people have unnecessarily walked away from faith, well, what beliefs are essential then to the Christian faith? What specifically must we affirm in order to be a Christian? What's essential and what isn't? Uh, and in case you're joining us for the first time today, I know with Thanksgiving weekend, we always have a lot of guests and welcome, welcome to you. Um, you really should know that we've already covered what I believe to be five essentials during this series. And no surprise, the first four all have to do with Jesus. So in week one, we noted this, that Jesus is God's son and our king. In other words, Christians must believe that Jesus was and is the Son of God who was sent by God and who will one day rule all people in the kingdom of God. That was week one. Then in week two, we noted that Jesus came to show us what God is like. 
In other words, we said that when you find yourself thinking about God, both what his general disposition is and how he feels specifically about you, well, according to Jesus, you should think about Jesus. Uh, He was clear that he came to illustrate and to demonstrate what God is like. So that was week two. Uh, Then in week three, we explored the idea that Jesus came to do what only he could do. Uh, We noted that he came to solve a problem that only he could solve. He came to get right what the first people got wrong. He was, in every sense, a second Adam. So that was week three. Then in week four, we looked at the specifics of why, specifically because of God's desire for justice, Jesus had to die for our sins. Uh, And then finally, last week, we explored why participation in a church, as defined by a gathering of believers where you both are known and know others, is essential. And we said it like this, uh, Christian community is critical for spiritual growth. In other words, following Jesus was never intended to be done alone. And so if you missed any of those talks, you can catch up on our website. And honestly, I really encourage you to do so. I think it's well worth your while. Also, if you have people in your life who've kind of wandered away from church and you think, man, this would, if they could listen to this, like send them a Starbucks card and say, hey, check out one of these talks. I'd love to, to interact with you about it. But anyway, that said, with the rest of our time together today, what I want to do is unpack one final essential of the Christian faith. And you can hold your emails. I'm sure there's others. This was just how much time we had this time around. But anyway, to get us going on our final essential, I want to ask you another question, and it's a question that you or someone you love may very likely have asked yourself before, and that question goes like this. Uh, What does Jesus want me to do with my life? In other words, apart from things like living with wisdom and not doing anything to hurt yourself or other people, what does Jesus want me to do with my life and with my time? And it's a great question. And again, it's a question I've been asked a whole bunch of times. And to get us moving towards an answer, what I want to do is explore an ancient account from the life of Jesus that was recorded by one of his first followers, a dude by the name of Matthew. And according to Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, immediately following his resurrection on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to two women. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I love the way these two women are described. Matthew tells us that their names are Mary and someone he refers to as the other Mary. And for some reason, that always makes me giggle, right? It's like it's been 2,000 years since this poor lady walked the surface of the earth, and she is only known as, you know, the other Mary. Anyway, maybe it's just me. I thought that was funny. Um, In heaven, we'll have a good chuckle about it. Anyway, so Jesus... uh, comes to these two women and near the tomb where he's raised from the dead and tells them the following. He says, go and tell my brothers, that's those first disciples, to go to Galilee. That's a region in the north of Israel, about a three days walk from where they were. And then he says, there they will see me. So Jesus says, tell my disciples to return to the Galilee, tell them to go back to the area where they were when I first invited them to follow me. And so the women find the disciples, they tell them what Jesus told them, and they immediately head for the Galilee. And Matthew tells us that Jesus met them there, and this is interesting, on the top of a mountain. Just have to imagine where this reunion took place. And uh, I actually find Matthew's description of what happened next powerful, because it points us back to the first essential that we discussed in this series, namely that Jesus is God's Son 
and our king. So here's what Matthew recorded happened when Jesus and the disciples came together. He said, when they saw him, so when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And you say, well, why, did, why, would, why would some doubt? Well, in their experience, like ours, dead people generally stay dead. So there were a few skeptics among them. But for the vast majority of them, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And, and, and we have to remember something. It's really easy to miss. But first century Jewish men, and the disciples, as best we can tell, would have been older teenagers or maybe young 20s. For first century Jewish men who've been raised in the Galilee to be worshiping someone is absolutely unprecedented. I mean, the area where they grew up was among the most religiously conservative in all of Israel. And they would have learned when they went to synagogue to study the text that Jewish people were to worship God alone. And so you have to imagine if someone were to approach them as they were worshiping Jesus on the top of this mountain and challenge them as to why they would worship someone uh, because they were to worship God alone, I'm confident that they would have responded, well, we're worshiping Jesus because we believe that he is God. In fact, we believe that he's the son of man written about 600 years ago by the Jewish prophet Daniel. And Daniel is a book in the Old Testament that they would have studied in synagogue. And that Daniel writes of, of this mysterious someone who he calls the son of man. And check out what Daniel tells us about the son of man. He says, the son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And then this, all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. He goes on to say his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In other words, after his resurrection, most of Jesus' disciples were convinced that he was God's son and our king and that as a result of that, he was worthy to worship. He was worthy of worship because of who he was and what he had done. Anyway, it's at this point in the narrative that Matthew recorded that Jesus began to speak to his disciples. And what he said to them, I would argue, may be the most underappreciated statement in the entire Bible. Seriously. Um, I I'm telling you, if the Jesus movement had fully embraced what Jesus said to his disciples this day, I argue that church history and even our world would be profoundly different. So here's, here's what Jesus said. He looked at them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, guys, you have to understand everything is now under my jurisdiction. Like everything, all authority has been given to me. And, and I, this was rattling around in my head this week a bunch, but so I just need to ask you to think about something with me. I mean, do you know why church leaders historically have been able to leverage the Bible in order to hurt people or groups of people? I actually think it's because they've made the mistake of equating the significance of what Jesus said here with pretty much every other verse in the Bible. Said a bit differently, over the generations, the church has leveraged the entire Bible as its authority. However, and this is huge, the authors of the accounts of Jesus' life recorded that Jesus said that he was to be our ultimate authority. And by implication, not every other part of the Bible. And, and that actually makes sense if you think about it because he is our king. 
And if you spend a lot of time in church, something inside of you may be like, wait a minute, I may disagree with that. And, and if that's what you're thinking, just hold on a second. Because if you think that sounds offensive to you, you should know that it sounded even more offensive to Jesus' first disciples. I mean, when th- what they heard when Jesus said what he said to them was basically that even though for 1,500 years they had looked to Moses as his authority, the Old Testament, all the rules and the regulations, they built their culture and their religion and their society around those things. Even though they looked to Moses for 1,500 years, he said, listen, guys, now I want you to look to me as your final authority. And, and I think, at least in this moment, they understood that, and that's why they worshiped him. In fact, after they worshiped him as their risen and forever king, I suspect that they actually anticipated what Jesus was about to do next. In other words, they said, okay, Jesus, you've established yourself as our king and the king. So now as our ruler, what do you want us to do with the rest of our lives? What do you want us to do for you? And if you said to me, well, what do you think they thought he would say? I would argue that they probably thought he would say something like, well, we need to reclaim Israel from the Romans. So I want you guys to gather an army of zealots and I want you to take over. That's not what he said. Matter of fact, he told them something that I think would have absolutely left them stunned. After, After affirming that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him by God, Jesus looked at his disciples right in the eye and said to them, here's what I need you to do. I want you to go and make disciples. Like the therefore, what's it there for? All authority has been given and heaven and earth been given to me. Therefore, I want you to go and make disciples. In other words, guys, moving forward, I want you to spend the rest of your lives extending the same invitation that I extended to you to become one of my disciples, one of my followers, one of my apprentices. As you go from this moment, I want you to leverage your time. I want you to leverage your talent and I want you to leverage your resources to help other people find and follow me. Moreover, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And I'm telling you, Jesus' statement here is so familiar to so many of us that it's easy to miss the significance of what he said. But when Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, again, they would have been shocked Because honestly, none of them had ventured very far out of the region around the Sea of Galilee other than to walk back and forth to Jerusalem to the temple for the feast. So they would have had no sense of what all other nations meant. But but there was something else too. Because if you'd asked them, they would have confessed that they kind of saw all non-Jewish people, they called them Gentiles, as almost entirely apart from the work of God in their world. I mean, there were a few Old Testament prophecies that someday everyone would worship God. But, but in general, they thought, you know, Gentiles are not God's people. We are God's people. So what in the world are you saying, Jesus, that we're supposed to go and make disciples of all the nations? I mean, we're, this makes us uncomfortable. And as Jesus kept speaking, things got even more uncomfortable because Jesus told them to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, the disciples would have been so confused because baptism was covenant language. When you baptize someone, they were a part of a new community. They were aligning themselves with a different set of 
ideas than they had prior to that baptism. And so if Jesus meant what he said, then he was effectively saying that his movement, the church, was to draw absolutely no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. When it came to church as Jesus intended it to be, what he's saying here is that everyone was welcomed and everyone was invited. And Jesus' disciples would have immediately thought, but what about all the rules? I mean, Jesus, for 1,500 years, we've been taught by Moses, we don't allow Gentiles into our homes. We eat different foods. I mean, we are intrigued by bacon, full disclosure. I smelled it once, right? Crazy. But, but Jesus, they eat what we don't eat. And they do things that we don't do. They have different morals, a different ethical framework for life. How can you offer full inclusion to non-Jewish people? And what about Moses? But Jesus looked at his disciples and said, listen, and I need you to understand this. You just baptized them when they placed their faith in me. You baptize them and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, I want you to instruct them to obey everything that I have instructed you to obey. I want you to teach them to live like I've taught you to live. And I want you to help them follow me. And, and they would have understood what that meant because Jesus had taught them a very different way to live even than what they found in the teachings of Moses. Jesus would say to them, listen, I want you to teach them that they don't need to worry about um, the speck in their neighbor's eye. They need to worry about the log in their own eye. And, and, I want, and I want you to teach them the story of the prodigal son because that will help them understand God's heart, not just towards obedient religious people, but towards people who are in complete rebellion against God. And he, God loves them and wants to be restored to them too. So teach them that story and, and tell them they need to go the extra mile in the service of their enemies. Not in the service of their friends, that's, that's easy, but in the service of their enemies. And, and teach them to forgive. Like regardless of what was done to them, I want you to teach them to forgive them. And while we're at it, I want you to teach them to love others like I have loved you. So don't just love other people like you want to be loved. That's good, but, but this one's better. I want you to love people, teach them to love people like I have loved you. And what did I do for you? I lay down my life for you. And I want you to teach them to wash one another's feet because my movement is to be a movement of the basin and towel where we live in service to other people. Teach them to do everything that I have commanded you to do. And again, notice with me, Jesus doesn't say, you know, teach them to believe everything you believe. That's good. It really is. But see, Jesus knows that it's doing that makes the difference and if you want to experience the new life that he has for us in the middle of this life, then we actually have to obey him. And so Jesus says, I want this movement to be not just around believing things, but I want this movement to be around doing things, living in a new way. Now check out what comes next. As he continued, um, and I love this, Jesus made his disciples a pretty incredible promise. He said this. He said, and surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, guys, as, as you go from here and you make disciples, I don't want you to worry. And I know I've asked you to make disciples of all the nations, and I know that's terrifying and overwhelming, and I know you don't know how to talk to Gentiles because they have a whole different way of doing things than you do, and I know you're afraid of the Romans because they've got the swords and the power 
And then this whole thing just feels overwhelming. But, but as you go, know this. And this really will change everything if you believe it. I am with you. And in fact, I'm not only with you, I'm with anyone who comes after you who dedicates themselves to making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I'm commanded you. I am with anyone, anywhere who regularly allocates a portion of their time and their talent and their resources to the work of making disciples because that work is my work and I love the world and God loves the world and he wants everyone to know my way as well as knowing me. Which of course, um, brings me to a really important question for you and me to consider, especially here. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is a question for you. If you're not, and I know there's a few of you here because you've been emailing me, which is awesome. Um, if you're not a Christian, this is not for you. You just get to watch on the outside. Um, but for those of us that are Christians, this, this is a great thing to consider. Does your life intersect systematically, not just one and done? Does your life intersect systematically? Do you have a rhythm where you're engaging with the work of an organization that makes disciples. Said a bit differently, are you currently engaged either directly or indirectly in helping people find and follow Jesus? And, and here's the thing, um, at Keystone, the find and follow Jesus is sort of a, a fun way that we've rephrased what Jesus said to his disciples here, right? It's called the Great Commission. You say the Great Commission, great, Jesus said it better than we can, but for us, we wanted something simple and portable. Are we helping people find and follow Jesus? That's our mission as a church. And, and this is just a brief aside as a pastor. I am so proud of the work that happens in and around us every single week. And I, I just made a list. That I just, I mean, I was just, I was really, yeah. It was a good pride, not a bad pride, you know. I know pride and all that, but yeah. Um, but this, this sort of thing happens around here in Keystone Kids. Right now, there are well over 100 little people learning that God loves them and learning that Jesus came for them and that Jesus wants to show them a better way to live. And there's staff that allocate their work lives to making that happen and a whole bunch of you who jump in and serve and work with the kids, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are helping people find and follow Jesus. And on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights around here, there's a program called Anthem. Randy mentioned it before, but Anthem is our program for middle and high school students. And I have three in that program right now. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for Ryan and Caitlin. Those are our two staff. And also the volunteers that are here every week with our teenagers because they're helping these kids find and follow Jesus. And again, as a dad with three in the program, there have been more than a few occasions, almost an uncomfortable number of occasions, where one of my boys will get in the car with me and I'll say, what did you learn tonight? And they're like, dad, I got something for the first time. And they'll tell me. And my first thought as a pastor is, bro, I have been telling you that for like ever, like your whole life. And they're like, wow, Jesus loves me. I'm like, seriously, we did this many times. But this is why it takes a village, right? It takes a community because sometimes, and maybe it's just me, my kids don't always listen to me the same way they listen to y'all, okay? So for those of you who have taken the time to build relationship with my boys and point them to Jesus, I, could not be, I, I couldn't be more thankful. You're about the work of helping them find and follow Jesus. And then I think about all the groups of adults that meet around here like regularly gather in circles to explore the text and to talk about life and to share life with one another. 
and, and to encourage one another and, and to be honest with one another. I'm with a group right now. We're journeying together for a year. A group of guys, we get together again this week and we read a book and then we come in and we talk about it and we also talk about life and it's become this, so I look forward to it. It's, it's amazing because we can help one another find and follow Jesus and it's not just us. And if that interests you at all, by the way, in the new year, there'll be some new opportunities to jump into a group like that. Not all of them with me because that would, that would be all I would be able to do, you know. But anyway, yeah, but like so many of you are engaged in this work every week. And I just, if that's you, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you and I want to tell you something without qualification. And I can do that because of what Jesus said to his first disciples 2,000 years ago. As you do this work, he is with you. He's with you as you go about the business of making disciples. He's with you. Which brings me to our final essential of the Christian faith. It's the last thing, at least in this list, that I'd argue that you really need to believe if you're going to be a Christian. And, and it's not going to surprise you based on what we've talked about so far. It goes like this. Christians are to help other people find and follow Jesus. Christians are to help other people connect to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then to learn to live like Jesus lived. And we're to do this as we go about our lives and our work and as we raise our kids and our grandkids, as we bump into people in our communities. It's like we are to be about his work while we go about our work. Followers of Jesus are to be in the business of helping more people place their faith in and actually follow Jesus. And whether you realized it before today or not, you know, that's what Jesus wants you to do with your life once you've come to place your faith in him, once you call him your king. Okay, so now I had to do one more thing just for fun. Um, I, and I wanted to respond publicly to a question that one of you asked me this week. Um, and it was a Keystone friend who spent much of his adult life studying the Bible. He loves the thick books and the theology. And he always asks me questions that I can't answer. So I love that. Um, I'm always like, I don't know. And he's like, you can't say, I don't know you're a pastor. I'm like, and yet I don't know. So there you go, right? Um, but he sent me a kind of a playful, friendly, funny email to inform me that <clears throat> he didn't like the simplicity of my list. And he said, I prefer something, and this is a quote here, a little more theologically weighty and historically grounded. And I fired back, something like what? And he said, something like, and he said, the Apostles' Creed. And some of you are familiar uh, with this creed. If you grew up in church like I did, you may have recited this creed a lot. And actually, it's a good creed. I like it. Um, it begins with these words. Uh, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, he was conceived by the, you know, I could go on. Um, it goes on to list a bunch of things that if you're a Christian, you believe. In other words, the Apostles' Creed is great stuff. But, but here's the thing. This creed was written during an era of history when the church was condoning all sorts of non-Jesus-y behavior because it was in an era of its history where it was absolutely laser-focused on what someone must believe and not how someone must live if they're going to be like Jesus. And in any era where belief is emphasized at the expense of obedience, people get hurt. And that's why, that's why, historically speaking, 
Jesus intended his followers to make more followers. Belief is a part of it. But it's only really where it starts. It's why before ascending to heaven and throwing them the keys to the church, he met his disciples on a mountaintop in the Galilee region of Roman-occupied Israel and looked at them as their final instructions, their great commission, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, guys, what do I want you to do with the rest of your life? I want you to make more disciples. Because that's where the life is found in this life. Your eternity is secure when you place your faith in what I accomplished for you on the cross. But if you want to access the eternal kingdom sort of life in this life, you need to follow me. Discipleship is not just for people like me who work for a church. It really is for everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus. Because again, one more time, according to Jesus, it's essential Christians are to help other people find and follow Jesus. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of this series. Um, I want to give you a little sneak peek about what starts next week, because I'm super, I'm always super pumped about it, but that's why I talk about it. Anyway, next week, we start a new series that'll lead us right up to Christmas Eve called Why Christmas? And we're going to chase down some of the reasons that I believe Jesus came And uh, I can't wait to share that content with you. And so with that, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. Uh, And once again this week, if if you came and you just need to talk to someone or pray with someone, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left. There'll be some friends there with name tags on uh, who are just available. But for the rest of us, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate your goodness and your grace as demonstrated in your one and only Son, who came to restore us in relationship with you and to teach us to live as our king. Thank you for loving us enough to move in our direction when we were unworthy. And thank you not just for saving us, but for infusing our lives with a purpose that each day we would be about your work of making disciples. So we thank you for this community. We thank you for all of the lives that are impacting other lives. And I pray that you would bless us all with your grace and your peace. It is in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.